welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we have a special guest star, my darling bride, Rabbit Stoddard. Yo. She is here to <laughs> talk with... She Sam sounds so thrilled to be here with you. <laughs> I'm very excited, actually. I don't know what would give you another impression. Hi. Hi, Sam. Hi, B. We're here to talk about uh, chapter two of the fifth edition DMG. This chapter is called Creating a Multiverse. Do you have opinions on creating multiverses, Rabbit? One or two. I, I said as if I did not know. <laughs> as if we had not, in fact, created multiverses together. More than one. Why don't you tell us what those opinions are? Well, for, first, actually, let's uh, let's try to um, make this a little bit bit structured. Do you have any sort of overall thoughts about the chapter? Um, yeah, I think it is mostly a good chapter. They kept some things from, so most of my experience with Dungeon Master's Guides is the uh, first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. So most of my opinions are yeah, whether on purpose or not, comparing to that. And, um, you know, hey, look, there's tables. And there's... (laughs) I I like tables. Hey, look, there's... um, Pretty good ideas for the assumption that you're going to be making something up on your own cosmologically. Or you can pick up and run with... um, I think at the very end of it, it gives you... uh, all of the basically setting worlds or setting material worlds from that D and D from Forgotten Realms to Birthright. So, right, this chapter sort of exists to forestall the need for a full Planescape release as long as possible. Right, uh, or a full any setting release, for I'd sure. say, because um, it, it it is kind of doing the work in a very very slim chapter of guys don't wait for us to release dark sun the box set or birthright the box set or whatever you want the box set we're going to assume that uh we'll run with some basic and y'all can Pick up your Dark Sun game in 5th edition or your Dragonlance game in 5th edition using the basic guidelines here of how to construct the material planes and everything else around it. I I agree with that assessment. The other thought I have about this, and we talked a little bit about this uh, when we were talking about Chapter 1, which, of course, Rabbit, you have not had the uh, pleasure or displeasure of hearing. Um, But one of the things that we talked about was the placement of this chapter in the book itself, because in chapter one, it kind of starts off with, Hey, here's how to create an entire world. And here's how to do the map. And here's how to do all this. And now chapter two, here it is again with, Hey, create all of this stuff now, Mm -hmm. but it's not really telling you how to play the game yet or how to run a good game yet or anything. It's just sort of blah. Here's some ideas. 
It's doing some of the heavy lifting of that. It's basically telling you how not to completely bork your game before you've even really started. Mm-hmm. So specifically, there's the putting the plans together piece, which is on the first page of this chapter, where it says, uh, at minimum, most D&D campaigns require these elements. Uh, a place of origin for fiends, celestials, elementals, for deities, these can cross over. Uh, some kind of what happens to mortal spirits when they die, some way to get from one plane to another, and some way to plug in the spells and creatures from the astral and the ethereal to function. doesn't care mm-hmm. if you can name them, but you have to have all these things. And this is actually rules text, because this is, hey, by the way, all of these things, fiends, celestials, elementals, these are going to be rules elements later, you've got to have something for them to plug into. Otherwise you're going to wind up cutting huge portions of the player facing material because a lot of the classes, subclasses, et cetera, have elements that trigger off of these things. And for what it's worth in my own setting design, I've run into that problem. I've done that to myself and regretted it. Right. Uh, So, you know, from one perspective, Hey, they haven't told us how to play the game. But they have told us how to think about it as a living place that you're interacting with and your players are interacting with without cutting yourself off at the mechanical knees. Um, And in terms of sort of the order the book is built in, I think that the DMG is very conscious of itself as a textbook, not a book you read cover to cover. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, You're pretty much going to like go to the table of contents, figure out the content you want to read about now and turn to that page. Right. Not, you know, read until you get to it. Um, it's just, yeah. I, I, how do people use books? And the reference manuals, we know right. this. You probably mentioned on this podcast before your thing about the fact that they're shelved in nonfiction. Well, they're, they're shelved in uh, right gaming. Sci-fi fantasy. Right, which is always with sci-fi and fantasy. In the Wall Street Journal, they're uh, for the leaderboards purposes, for bestseller purposes, they're nonfiction, which mm-hmm. is always interesting to me. Right, because the reference they're, they're reference manuals, right? Exactly. And as long as it's not a website you're clicking around on, so you don't have. I mean, it, it's it's functionally nonfiction in the same way that Hoyle's Rules of Games is nonfiction. Right. Sure. But you got to put it in some kind of order and building it on the. Um, well, you've got to have a setting that your characters are moving around in. Uh, starting with that, I think, is worthwhile. Um, you can do it the other way where you're starting with, okay, I have these characters and I'm building the world around them. But um, at least in my experience, and everyone works differently, that is a very good way to uh, be going, uh, crap, I don't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Because there are always going to be things that your players didn't necessarily I mean, plan for. Yeah. And most DMs, and again, th- there are probably DMs who do this exactly the way I'm going to say that I would never do it. Uh, memorize every aspect of their players' power sets and then build the setting around that. That's probably a very fascinating way to do this and I wish people who do that a lot of luck but 
me personally, I'm going to build like the world and the cosmology and the weird stuff. And then I'm going to try to come up with excuses to throw my players against it as yeah. much as possible. Well, and, and in the, the player community that you and I have you know, been in for, for the past many years, Rabbit, um, the, the inclination is much more to say, okay, what's, what's okay in your world? Not to say, hey, I found this thing in the book. This must be okay because it was in the book. Right. And, and that's fortunate because we're both the kind to say, hey, that thing in the book doesn't fit what I want to do in my setting. Sure. Though, so, though so, I do so, think that you know, going, hey, as long as you have these elements, you can call them whatever the hell you want. Yeah. But m- the vast majority of the powers and things should function you may have to do some name change flavor changes but you know yeah well that's uh, fine one of the things that just as an example one of the things that isn't listed in that actually quite good bullet point list is the Feywild. you know that was the first thing i thought yeah and then i realized that um because it doesn't mention the material plane so so it's kind of assuming which immediately made me think oh Huh. I wonder if I can run a game without a material plane. Okay. But, um, well, sure. But it, it starts with the material plane and its echoes, and it includes the Feywild and the Shadowfell sure. as echoes of that, which, yeah. as you know, as, as Brandis well knows, we've certainly done it where the Feywild is actually the astral or the ethereal. Oh, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can, you can start doubling and tripling these yeah. up if you... Have that as an inclination. I mean, fourth edition was not at all shy about doubling up a place of origin for elementals with a place of origin for fiends. Right. Sure. And they and they say that yeah, you can you can cross those. Um, yeah. Actually, on the next as it goes into essentially uh, structures for cosmologies. So now that you have planes you got to connect them in some way. Yep. So it goes through a uh, great wheel, world tree, world axis, and then a whole bunch of other ones yep. that uh, some of which are based on um, ancient cosmologies. Some of which are, uh, let's see, like the orrery, the inner and outer planes orbit the material plane, exerting greater or lesser influence as they come nearer and farther. This is the Eberron model. Yep. Right. Uh, right. I, I quite like uh, that the way that this is structured because they do a pretty decent job of giving a really broad overview of how these are all connected and then provide you with several examples of other ways to do it. And then you can do whatever you want, of course. Um, but, you know, a lot of times uh, a textbook style book will say, well, you can do whatever you want, but here's one way to do it. And then everybody ends up doing it that way because that's the way with the example, right? For and sure. I quite like the way that they've done this because it prov- it gives almost as much text to each of these examples as it gives to the actual three main ones that it starts out talking about. So it, I think they did a pretty good job of this actually in one page. Right, and and I love that there is this much support for homebrewed content, and not kind of uh, here's the default. I guess you could do a bunch of extra work if you felt like it. Fine, but no, no. Default is it. You know, it gets pride of place 
by one position, okay. Um, but um, it, it's it's pretty minimal. Like, yes, all the later content is going to assume the default because it's taking place in an official setting. So, yeah, of course. But um, I, I really like that they weren't so hung up on how can we force you to buy official adventures and run those that you can hardly think outside the default? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that makes me happy. Yeah. As, uh, as we talked about, um, and you guys may have touched on this also, but Brandis and I talked about in a separate conversation, one of the interesting things about the Dungeon Master's Guide as a whole is that, it assumes you're going to be creating your own content. So it focuses more on this is how you design a world to role play in and a setting to role play in. Here are tools for that. Not, not necessarily how do you run content that we're going to be spoon feeding you. It, It actually spends relatively little time on that. And I guess part of that is because a lot of that's in the player's handbooks. But the other thing is, D&D from the AD&D days has always done this. Yep. Mm-hmm. First edition did this. Uh, I mean, there's rules for Boot Hill in first edition, as I'm right. sure you talked about. Yep. So, and and like, that's definitely been a major through line of our conversation in this whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for fifth edition, the starter set and the essentials kit are very much where they want you to go to learn the very most fundamental how do you implement content that we have spoon fed you? Right. Um, and you know, we, we have those and I've run some of the, the starter set. It is, it's hard for me to run because I wasn't trained in running, um, official content. Right. Uh, I, I got my start improvising content into place uh, you know, five or 10 minutes before the players got there. <laughs> um, right. I mean, I, so I'm a homebrew person as well. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, it, it's really funny because I, and, and I've said this on this podcast before, but my, my sort of main conjecture about the published, uh, the published adventures, the hardback adventures, not the, not the starter sets, but the hardbacks is that, they could actually do so much more to help a new DM learn how to run those types of adventures and make it all encompassing in one book. And they, they choose not to do that. They choose not to provide sidebars with design notes or with, you know, uh, different ways to adjudicate this particular situation or how to respond if your players choose this thing or that thing or whatever. Um, and they choose not to do that. But anyway, that, that's a kind of a tangential subject. But the way it relates to this is it's almost as if um, the DMG in 5th edition, aside from the magic item content, aside from the magic item chapter, the DMG is not really necessary unless you're homebrewing. Because if you buy a boxed set or like one of the starter sets, or if you buy a hardcover adventure book and you have the player's handbook, it's kind of all encompassing. The only thing you would need the P- the DMG for is if there's an errant magic item in there. Uh, I mean, or if you wanted the official planes content. Sure. Yeah. It, it comes up much later in a campaign, right? But if 
you need that to the same degree you need the magic items. Right. You can look up all your own magic items. Right. Ask me how I know. And yeah. there's and there's honestly a there's a section on the planes and the and the gods and the different planes in the back of the PHB. Right. So really, uh, you don't you don't need it if you're well. It, the section tells you almost nothing. Well, but if you're going to go beyond the hardback book, then you're now into a different realm. I'm talking about if you just run the hardcover adventures as is. Oh, sure. 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 Right. Then um, the DMG isn't really needed. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, sure. Because, it, uh, I mean, as we were kind of saying, it doesn't exist to help you run official content. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, now, the official content should be as self-explanatory as possible. I now that I've written for Watsi, I can say this much more authoritatively. <laughs> So that said, there's a, I mean, there's a middle place between I'm homebrewing all my content and I'm running official published adventures, which is I'm converting my, you know, third ed, fourth ed, first ed game to Mm -hmm. edition, Mm -hmm. or I want to run a game in a previously published D&D setting like Dragonlance or Birthright or Eberron or whatever. Um, Mistara. Uh, they, they, there's actually a shout out to this I one. know. Athos, <laughs> Cran, uh, Earth for Greyhawk and Toral. Noah Beer. Mm. Well, it showed up <laughs> halfway, showed up in one edition. Right. So I'm but um, the poor people of a beer shunted back into their own parallel world. But my point is. If, if your thing is, well, I'm not, I don't really think of it as homebrewing, but what I want to do is convert and they haven't given adventures. So I want to uh, run stuff with that. So it's technically official content, but official in the broad D&D sense. Uh, this book and specifically this chapter is going to be the one um, that you care most about. Because this is where they dive deep into talking about, well, I don't know about deep, but they dive into talking about the Outlands and Sigil and um, uh, Mechanis and uh, the Domains of Dread and the Shadowfell and all of that. So, sure. I mean, I think that's fair. I I just, I think it's interesting because um, there's a sort of, you know, in, in first edition, so let's ignore the fact that the that the monster manual came out first, and so you didn't even have the DMG or the player's handbook, and you were probably using that monster manual with OD and D with the little brown books. I mean, or something. Lord knows where you're getting your attack table for the first few years, right? Well, so that's why I'm saying you must be getting it from your cobbled together OD and D booklets, right? You don't even know how much XP those creatures are worth in the monster manual because there's no XP entry in there. But anyway, that's beside the point. That's not actually where I'm going. Where I'm going is... No, gave XP anyway. <laughs> right. Is it bringing me the order of operations in which I read these books? Is Well, well right. Yeah. But there was this weird two-year gap where there were no instructions on giving XP in all of first edition. Right, right. But here, here's my point, though. If you were running... If you were me... And you were coming into AD&D and trying to run it when all three of the main, you know, the PHB and the DMG and the Monster Manual were all out already. So I wasn't waiting for the DMG to be released for years, okay? I had all three of them. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't run the game without the DMG. 
because I needed the attack matrices. Sure. Yeah. Right? And I needed the XP entries in the back of the of the first edition DMG, which are for the monsters in the monster manual. Well, and and everything about magic items is in there, and right. everything about um, curses and right, literally everything that I need to know to sort of run the game. Even if I'm running a 32 page published module or something, I need that book. Whereas it's a it's a weird evolution for me to sit here at fifth edition and think to myself. I don't actually need this book. If, if even if I was a new DM, if I was running a published adventure, a big giant three hundred page published adventure from Wizards of the Coast, I probably wouldn't need this book. Not until I was already far enough along that I really wanted to homebrew. But wouldn't you say that's also been a quality of life improvement? Like the specific things that have migrated out of the DMG, has that steadily been a quality of life improvement? For oh, sure. I, this isn't a complaint. It's just a. It's simply an observation, right? I'm not this. I, I hear that offered as a slam on the DMG. I mean, no, 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 no. That's that's not actually. How, I'm I'm sorry that you hear it that way because that's not how I mean it. What what how I mean it is, I think it's a very interesting evolution of the game yeah. that we have that we've made it so that the DMG is kind of optional and it's really. Um, I mean, it's a content generation engine. If you don't need right. content generation, you're fine. Well, it's, it's really for people who are, who are ready to do the homebrewing. Whereas I think in first edition, the rules were sort of hidden from the players in, in a lot of cases, but also it was just expected that you were going to do the content generation from the get go. Whereas I think in fifth edition, this is written as if, hey, I'm talking to an experienced DM already, and you're not going to be using these chapters, even chapter one and two, until you're really ready to homebrew your own thing. So in, in retrospect, because uh, we, may, we may have talked about this on the, uh, the Tome Show when we were talking about Mega Dungeons. Um, mm -hmm. I mean... I grew up with the, oh, you can't read these books, but we didn't even actually have a player's handbook for first edition. <laughs> uh, like my dad rolled up our characters. Mm -hmm. We didn't look at a player's handbook. I'm pretty sure I never saw a player's handbook until second edition. Uh, nice. So we did everything out of the DMG, the monster manuals. Uh, I think it's Unearthed Arcana. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, the orange spine on Unearth Arcana we have and knows from my dad. Um, but uh, but yeah, at, at the time, the player's handbook to me still occupies a place in my mind as, well, that ought to be the expendable one because the kids. <laughs> but no, and less so these days than ever before. But, um, but uh, even... Even like the first campaign I ever played was based on Caverns of Cascatton, but it was heavily homebrewed and uh, and modified from that. So mm -hmm. at least I always have some expectation that a DM for a game I'm playing or myself is either going to be running entirely their own setting or their own content in an established setting. The couple of times I've, you know, gone to play an adventure, have I have not enjoyed. Have mostly been uh, a huge letdown for me. Although, 
yeah, I've I've still promised to run Oops All Rangers, Strahd Must Die, <laughs> uh, Curse of Strahd. So, Oops All Rangers, Curse of Strahd. <laughs> yeah. Something happened on Twitter. It was a strange yeah, day. Yeah, it's entirely the fault of that bird site. But, um, yeah. You know, which is technically in this chapter. Right. This chapter. Yeah. We're talking about this one. Right. Um, right. Uh, but I, I just, I, I just want to, it really isn't a complaint for me. It's just a more a statement about the shift of the focus because mm-hmm. I do agree with you, Brandis, that it is a quality of life improvement, as we talked about with um, second edition, where now suddenly things that were previously only DM facing are now player facing. So you kind of you have an information structure now that you can act on when you're playing the game, whereas before you sort of didn't. And yeah. I just think this is a continuation, I guess, is my point of that particular focus of these books because I, to me, the fifth edition DMG is very different from the first edition DMG. Now that's not to say it's completely different because I could set them side by side and find so many things that are in both. Right. But but the way it was used and the way it was at least for me meant to be used, the perceived purpose of the use of it was so different in first edition to me. And so it's very interesting as we're going through this, as I read, and I'll probably mention this every single episode and all of our listeners will get really tired of hearing me say something like this, but I really do. That's part of why I talk about the order of the chapters, because I'm trying to really suss out, okay, who is this book for and why was it written this way? And and what is it? So anyway, so I'll get off my soapbox and and let you. I I will reiterate my, my long held belief that, the first edition DMG was consciously designed to be an, an initiatory experience that is so hard to follow that it will break, break your brain in some way. <laughs> like, yeah. because, because ideas don't flow into each other really at all. It's just, uh, we had to put these in some order, and this is as good as anything, so whatever. Um, there's occasionally something resembling interstitial text, but... Eh. Uh, not, not a lot of it. Um, he'll just kind of um, uh, you know, hard shift into, now we're talking about why you shouldn't make it easy to get training. Uh, sure, sure, Gary. Yeah. And then, by the way, lycanthropy. Hey, look at that. You know it's a disease. Hey, talking yeah. about other diseases. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so many diseases. Yeah. yeah. So, to be fair, this, you know... Uh, it is difficult in the in a book format to talk about things that sort of mindfully cross over with each other an awful lot. For mm-hmm. example, um, I, I guess part of uh, there are a lot of things in Dungeons and Dragons in general that have grown out of Gary Gygax's um, ontological absolutism. I guess, as mm-hmm. in one word, one thing. Right. Don't let's use the same uh, two different words to refer to the same thing. So a you know a uh, a shambler and a zombie are two different things, guys. A a ghost and a specter are two different things. Mm-hmm. And different from a wraith and a shadow. And a right and a white and a poltergeist. Not to mention the ghoul. Yeah, and which is yeah. different from a zombie. And the lacedon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the like, okatha. <laughs> well, 
Uh, it goes without saying, my friend. <laughs> so, but related, the astral and the ethereal are two very different things with different mechanical effects that hang off of them, which at this point has become established. Yep. But mm-hmm. I'm relatively sure because I was having this thought just as I looked at it. What the hell is the difference between the astral and the ethereal anyway? Oh, yeah. Now, in, in other settings, you have made up some to go, hey, let's class this as astral and class this as ethereal. Let's call, call it a day. But yep. I, it's like, oh, yeah, hey, we should, you know, look at the uh, official guidance on what makes something astral versus yep. ethereal. Yep. Well, and what's funny is that you and I wound up, certainly not consciously on my part, um, recreating the astral ethereal split and functional purposes in Dust to Dust. Because the astral is the road of black stars, you know, astra, stars. Right. And the ether, where the spirits go, yeah. is is the same in purpose. And it's a, a parallel realm you can slip into and still see, yeah. you know, the physical world. And it was also kind of the Feywild. It was also kind of the Feywild-ish for yeah. us. Mm-hmm. But, like, that wasn't something that we were trying to do when we did that, but that is what we built. Uh, certainly I, I will freely admit that this is strongly stamped on my imagination. Yeah. You know, starting in 1993 or thereabouts. Um, yeah. And, and to be fair, looking at, I mean, looking at how they describe them in the book, the astral plane is essentially uh, the Jungian collective unconscious mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. a certain perspective. Yep. Yeah, it's thought space. Well, yeah. it, thought right. space, dream space. Yep. It, it's very much like it, so, yeah. so. In some editions, it's been um, shaved off from the dream plane in some way, and in some editions, this one, it isn't. Yeah, I think that's sort of an interesting set of choices. Um, I, I kind of wish that Githyanki reflected that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they're psionic, and so that that's not nothing. But um, like, they, they literally live in the plane of dreams, the, the timeless place where their rich queen reign, reigns supreme, and they don't like just show up in your nightmares all the time? Like, mm-hmm. Come on, bro. I mean, and, yeah. and that would uh, that would harken back to I think their original canonical to sources. to George R. R. Martin's use of them, not entirely unlike. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're not humanoid at all. Yeah, but, to um, be to be fair, it talks about how their special silver swords. Can... Yeah, I've, I've always loved their silver swords. I am I am here for uh, Githyanki knights with silver swords. The aesthetic is great. Right. And and they can they actually can cut the cord, right? And so you yeah. get totally screwed. Um and that is a great plot point. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh and, and they explicitly say it's a C, so we can, you know, talk about astral skiffs and stuff. Yeah, that's a really nice four E innovation. Yeah. Um where it, it becomes much more of a place you can go and see stuff. Um Planescape in second ed really started to trend in that direction. And then third ed kind of didn't sustain it well enough. Mm-hmm. 
do we get dead gods here? Do we talk about dead gods at all? Yeah, it, it talks about how Tunerath is on the body of a dead god. Oh, good. Okay. That makes me happy. I mean, hey, color pools table. I like color pools. Color yeah. pools are awesome. Yep. Yeah, but then right on the next page, the ethereal curtain color table, which is totally different and completely unrelated. And yeah, but same effect. Um, yeah. The thing I find interesting about this is it has this really great lore, but then there's these little rules bits thrown in. For example, a traveler in the astral plane can move simply by thinking, and therefore uh, a creature's walking speed in feet is equal to three times its intelligence score because a smarter creature ha- has an easier time controlling their movement. <laughs> which I find so cool. And yet it's like buried at the bottom of these four paragraphs of, you know, that right there is a great adventure seed. They could do a lot worse than uh, kicking this into bullet points. So there's a couple, there's a couple of things like that Um, in the, in the bit about the optional rule of shadow fell despair. I, I listened to a a previous edition wars where you guys were talking about madness rules mm-hmm. and there's reference in the psychic wind effects about short-term madness, long-term madness problems up, down and center. We all know this, but I actually really like the, the madness effect that they have in the shadow fell dispel despair rule. Um, there's a D6, there's apathy, dread, and madness. Madness gives you disadvantage on ability checks and saving throws that use int, wisdom, or claw, and you gain the following flaw, I can't tell what's real anymore. Yeah. I actually like that a lot better than almost any implementation for madness in any of the D&D stuff, where, mm-hmm. they, try to, where they try to get really diagnostic with it. Oh, and yeah. I, there's nearly going to be no way to do that. That's really okay as someone who has spent a rather a lot of time intersecting with uh, mental health stuff. Um, but this feels um, valid. I mean, it, it feels like this is a nice common denominator for most um really bad mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. The the feeling of I can't trust what I think is real to actually be real. Uh, right. uh, enough to carry it off seriously and with some gravitas while also not getting people to play stereotypes of actual diagnosed conditions. So, so can I ask you a question about how you feel about this? Sure. Uh, so how do you feel about the fact that this condition is cured with a second level spell. Good, bad, uh, indifferent. Well, the fact that it is nebulous, mm-hmm. the fact that it is more nebulous makes it more okay to me. Okay. Because I have a much bigger problem if it's, hey, you have, you know, uh, disassociative identity disorder or something like that. And that's cured with a second level spell. For sure. That, that kind of bugs me for, for, sure. for a whole lot of reasons, but we have this condition that's effectively madness and it's, uh, you know, it's the effect of a lot of the bad ones. One of the main, I don't know if you'd want to call it as a symptom or I guess presentations is that unreality 
But we're at least not talking about, hey, we're trying to map it onto something that someone's really diagnosed with. So it's mm-hmm. much more okay that, because that feeling of unreality, at least in my experience, is not necessarily persistent all the time. Okay. Well, and and the other thing about this is this is a definite condition imposed by the environment. Yeah. This is not an organic yeah. brain yeah. chemical brain construction brain framework issue. Yeah. And 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 that brings us to the in spite of the efforts of many designers over time, D&D is not a sim. It it does really really bad things when you try to make it a hard sim. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about madness effects, my personal thing and other folks may feel differently. Uh, I mean, other folks with my same diagnostic history may feel differently. But um, for me, the further away it gets from something that implies you know a brain chemistry thing and the more it sticks to this is the pre- this is a presentation that's divorced from that the happier mm-hmm. i am okay and right. but uh, but having so so the other really interesting thing about this yeah. that uh, you know i'm also interested in whether it is a good or a bad or indifferent for you is that it's a flaw your flaw only actually affects the game if you want to get paid inspiration for it. Uh, okay, so... Is that is that good, bad, or indifferent? That's a whole other can of worms because mm-hmm. I, I definitely don't want to go down the... Okay, now we're talking about the inspiration system sure, sure. and and the the well-cut, badly-sewn nature of it and how, it, how it's used. Well Can we not? Well, so I'm going to say, well, okay, I can't, I can't make a statement about that without also making a statement about do I think the inspiration system is good, bad, and different in terms of how it's implemented. So, so, so for, my, for, for me personally, uh, I like that it is an opt-out deal here. You can say, I don't, I, I'm not comfortable playing in that space. I'm just going to shine on this flaw. It doesn't need to affect my play. Sure. And you still get all the disadvantage you, you still have, aspects of it. You still, so. have, you still have the mechanical disadvantage. Yeah. But you're just, now you're just like shoving it into mechanics and whatever. Right. That seems okay-ish. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I, w- I would be pretty comfortable with uh, rules or um, madness in game being largely about uh, you have this flaw where you doubt reality. That that bothers me a lot less than some of the ways I know they get into it later. But, for sure, um, for sure. Um, you know. One of the things that I I don't know if I dislike about it is this is attached to the Shadowfell, and it's attached to something they're calling despair, which is close to depression and hopelessness and 
you know. Um, but let's be honest, if if that's going to cause you as a PC to gain the flaw, I can't tell what's real. Well, why wouldn't walking around the absolute <laughs> up way high magic fountain of the Feywild do that? Well, why, why wouldn't walking around the abyss do that? Well, there's no reason it couldn't. I mean, know that this is an optional rule. You could certainly mm -hmm. take this and graft it somewhere else. And the Feywild may do, I mean, they talk about the time dilation effects and other mm -hmm. stuff, but um, but I'll also note since I skip, I saw madness and skip right to it. The other ones, apathy and dread. Dread is very specific about the place. The flaw is, I'm convinced this place is going to kill me. The so apathy one is real interesting because the one that will sound familiar to to people who have struggled with some of these things. I don't believe I can make a difference to anyone or anything. Yeah. So it is interesting stuff. Those are a real pain in the butt to role play, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of fitting for what, because they talk about how, yeah, so Barovia and the domains of dread, those are basically prisons associated with the shadow fell. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I don't believe uh, curse of Strahd intersects with any of the shadow, shadow fell despair rules. I haven't yeah. reviewed it uh, before saying that, but I don't, I don't recall it doing well, so. It, it probably doesn't because again, it calls out, this is an optional rule. Yeah. Um, but th they also, you know, skipped a lot of the really classic uh, Barovia rules, like dark powers checks. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, that that's just not what they wanted out of Christmas. Yeah. Show. The um the the parallel in the Feywild stuff is uh the Feywild magic is uh time warping on you and potential memory loss. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is effectively a curse because it says any spell that ends can end a curse can restore the creature's lost memories. So they do stuff, and um, one of the aspects of how they put all this together is you could definitely take the the way they do the optional rule in either the Feywild or the Shadowfell and port it onto the other one and just mm -hmm. change some of the effects, but having a consequence of planar travel being, yeah, we're going to f*** your uh, ideals, bonds, and flaws, um, leaving aside the fact that those are largely levers for uh, inspiration right. um, is interesting. If you're using them also for role play. Right. As a summary of who you are. Yeah. Right. The thing is that they they also have like these optional rules attached to uh, the uh, when they talk about the outer planes, um, yeah. and the, for the majority of those, it's you know saving throws, and I don't I don't I don't think it's been a while since I've read this now. Um, I don't think many of them are. Uh, they don't change your ideal bond or flaw. So, yeah. it's interesting oh. that that the Shadowfell and the Feywild. Um, you know, yeah, and, it, and as a note, it doesn't overwrite any that you already have. It just 
tax another flaw on. Sure, sure. Um, that's a sort of drawback to because when they're talking about the ethereal plane, because we talked about the astral, okay, that's you know, dream space. It talks about the ethereal as well. And I do kind of have, as I read this thing about the misty fog bound dimension, that's basically a border with a lot of borders on it. It's borders all the way down. I, I kind of wonder if the ethereal plane actually justifies its existence or why wouldn't you just collapse it with the astral in the way it's presented here? Um, well, so the, the idea of the ethereal is that it is uh, you know, something that ghosts and invisible creatures are, are standing in, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is, it's behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I can frame an argument that would satisfy why can't you just collapse this with the astral? Like, sure, creatively you could do anything. I mean, yeah. But uh, it does serve a different purpose that is much more physically oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like the the ethereal is here. It's just that it's the stuff that's here that we can't see, whereas the astral is a different place. But but they're both very very interstitial spaces, mm-hmm. and that's that's the whole concept. Uh, it's just uh, like. I don't know. I, I think for me, the ethereal is very much a concept of walking from the front of house to backstage. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you you go through the the several tiers of curtains mm-hmm. until you're actually now standing backstage and in the, another place. And the astral in in that metaphor is that that's a fine question. It's yeah. it's a different metaphor, frankly. Yeah. It, the astral is the control booth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, like yeah. the astral up is up in the rafters. Uh, right. Maybe it's up in the rafters. Maybe it's uh, the playwright sitting at his desk. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's really, really a different metaphor if you let it be. Uh, like mm-hmm. I, I'm not in charge of how anyone else views anything, but the astral being uh, a time stopped place mm-hmm. where like time doesn't pass into a wrath. Events still occur. Things still occur sequentially, but nothing ages, and th- there's that there's a sense of permanence uh, and agelessness in you know the Lich Queen Vlakith, the fifty first, sixty, whatever the number is, guys. I don't I don't under this pressure. And, and to I, be, I do, but that's that's a different matter. Um, to be fair and answer my own question, the the point that they make is that the astral is connected to all the outer planes and all the ones that are functionally like afterlife uh, sort of planes like Limbo, mm-hmm. Patagonium, the Abyss, Olivia, etc. And the ethereal ones are connected to elemental planes and other more material stuff. Right. And in, in fourth edition, it was, they beat the drum a lot harder of the fact that the astral sea was hooked into everything faith related and the divine power source. Mm-hmm. That was super, super important. And they are much more into letting you build your own cosmology here or conceive of your of the cosmology in your own way. And so they don't beat that drum nearly as hard in fifth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in in fourth edition, all of the uh, all the things we think of as upper planes and a bunch of the lower planes are domains within the astral. Yeah, uh, they're, they're they're sort of little pockets in the astral that have somewhat different rules. Uh, in fifth, they're explicitly outside the astral. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, d- I do appreciate your comment about uh, the borders all the way down, though. You know, I, I heard you like some borders, so I brought you some borders to put on your borders. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was really sad when they went out of business. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you can cross while you cross. So, um, so if you, say, really, really cared about that fog between the material plane and Barovia, what the hell is that? You'd have a worse argument to make than, yeah, that's the border material. Oh, I think that's I think you're explicitly and, right there. Yeah, I mean, it, it talks about Shadowfell, Dusky Gray, and the domains of dread are not exactly the Shadowfell, but not not the Shadowfell. Yeah. They're kind of to borrow a phrase from uh, uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. They're kind of scaries off the Shadowfell. Yeah. Which leads to the next all important question: the ep- the upside down, a really f- version of the ethereal plane, or just the shadow fell? Uh, so, so <laughs> for me, it is uh, the the fall realm that infected the shadow fell. Okay, yeah, I'll buy that. Uh, so I, I do. I, I want to make sure we actually get through this. This is even more f- than the shadow fell usually is. <laughs> I want to make sure we, get, we actually get through this chapter. It's a short chapter, but folks. <laughs> Who do you think you're listening to? Um, so, so, so I love that the inner planes are a place where you can go have adventures in in fourth and fifth. I think it is one of the the most important innovations of fourth and fifth that like the plane of fire is not just you know fire top to bottom, nothing else there. There's nothing to to, to want there. It's just fire, right? This is instead uh, a heavily fire-themed place with people and things. Moving the city of brass to the plane of fire instead of being part of the nine hells is a real interesting. Uh, thing to me. This is part of uh, the nine hells. City of brass has been uh, the city of the Afrit for a long time. Okay, I, I seem to remember the city of brass. Oh, oh, in I can't. I can't speak as far back as you can. So in uh, the first said monster manual. Yeah. Which is where they went through all the yeah, devils yeah. and stuff being um, uh, being like the uh, one one or the other of the devils, and I may be completely making that up out of whole cloth. But I, I, um, I'm willing to be wrong with first edition. But yeah. I, I have not read uh, the the fiend folio yeah. any time recently. But it's the way I recall it, and it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, here we actually get um, on. Uh, page 57, a map that places the material plane at the center and then uh, talks about how the the inner planes intersect with each other around it. And so you have your your para-elemental and your quasi-elemental planes, sort of, at the intersections of those. But uh, again, as I say, there are places to go that are different and named and memorable uh, within... Each of the inner planes. I think that is a very cool thing, and a, a very important carryover. Um, and so we get a couple of pages, uh, a couple of columns, um, discussing some of those locations. 
it, it's a paragraph per location, but that's fine. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, the, the city of brass gets gets a few paragraphs. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the fountains know. of creation are kind of sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he, he thinks that there wasn't a good foundation for uh, Cobalt Press's awesome city of brass shirts. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, the inner planes just now sound like things uh, from the Magnus Archives to me. That's great. Thanks, Magnus Archives. <laughs> yeah, looking at the list of the outer planes and uh, thinking about how now the the actual name of the thing from first edition is now a descriptor, like the seven heavens, like Mount Celestia, comma the seven heavens of where previously it was just the seven heavens, although they keep the nine hells, and what the f- is Baator? I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, and, so and, about second edition and how they needed to get very carefully around words like hell and devil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was this satanic panic. <laughs> I, I well recall, and if we get into stories about that, we'll be here all night. I also appreciate the to, don't to don't threaten a- me with a good time, my love. I had to explain the the satanic panic to my sister in law the other day when I was on the phone with oh, my geez. brother. Yeah, she didn't know what I was talking about, so I had to explain it to her. <laughs> so good times. I had not encountered this, and it's probably just as well. So I remember the twin paradises. This bitopia thing, B Y T O P I A. Is it, 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 yeah, I, I'm 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 going, huh? So that was clearly originally spelled differently, and then they went, wait, we can't do that, and I'm like, and why not? Because now you have offended my, you know, very little bit of antiquities language, <laughs> bullshit. Because by, as far as I know, does not mean that. Well, does not mean two or dual in the same way. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, I don't know about y'all, but Bytopia sounds like a hell of a good time to me. <laughs> so, you know, the, twin paradises are bust. Well, well let's, let's do that. That's what happens when Zagreus gets to reform Elysium. There you go. And playing a lot of Hades. Hades joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like these. Uh, you know that they have these um, these optional rules, and uh, the optional rule for Elysium is uh, visitors spending time on the plane risk becoming trapped by overwhelming sensations of contentment and happiness. And <laughs> you just you never want to leave. I I think it's maybe not as fun as being trapped by overwhelming sensations of. Theseus and Asterius, but that's me. That was a fun fight. Oh, so, sorry, guys. 80s joke number two. I'll be here all night. Well, I, I'm here for the pervasive goodwill of Bytopia because that matches my experience of... Wait. <laughs> the, the pervasive goodwill of kids in a chair, right? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, judge me not. <laughs> So I just want to point out, dear listeners, how absolutely hilarious it is that Brandis is the one who said, gee, I want to make sure we get through this in a timely manner. 
I always say that, and I always do this. I, I have a job on this show, Sam. And it's making sure we don't get through things in a timely manner. I thought that was clear. Yeah, it's the, uh, the you know ironic character note. It happens every episode. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's like the turn in a leverage episode. Yeah, right. That's right. It, it's a very distinctive turn, Heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so, so we get through a bunch of other uh, places where you will definitely have a bad time adventuring, such mm-hmm. as Limbo. You know, it's bad for you in a bunch of different ways. Uh, Pandemonium, it's bad for you in a bunch of different ways. The Abyss um, is bad for you in a bunch of different ways. Um, demonic Possession, not not ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, treachery, uh, we, we get back to have a new character flaw, right? Mm-hmm. Um, treachery, oh. I can only achieve my goals by making sure that my companions don't achieve theirs, and so on. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. The Abyss does, in fact, throw uh, uh, throw flaws at you. Yeah, I had missed that one. But uh, they're really, I think, uh, imagining the Abyss as one of the uh, outer planes you are most likely to go, you know, F around and find out in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's why they give you a bunch of great villains by name that you might want to go murder. <laughs> like, yeah, it's great. That's a high-level play, folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to go kill Orcus. Great. Let's see if the Abyss doesn't kill you first or get you to kill the rest of your party first. Good times. That's, right. that's always awesome. Um, and, it, you know... Um, the, the Hades joke number three is going to write itself for me. His Hades here is on the bottom of page 63. That's good. Um, I mean, yeah, that vile transformation thing sure sounds like the wretches in Tartarus. That's, um, that's fine. And like Carceri, it's a terrible place. You shouldn't want to go there, except that it's probably super fun to have ventures in. Um, um, it, we will also note that, especially in the Abyss, um, for the most part, we don't play with alignment. Oh, you know, for sure. We certainly don't play with character alignment because uh, for a whole host of reasons that I know for a fact you guys have gone into in depth on <laughs> in other episodes. However, if you're playing in the Abyss, especially if you're using the optional rules around Abyssal Corruption, um, you're going to have to figure out what the stand-in is for it or it's just assuming that, hey, if you are here to overthrow Orcus, whatever it is you're doing, you're probably not yourselves evil. But a lot of the effects here um, and the Dispel Evil and Good spells are going to hang on your relationship to at least the evil and good parts of the alignment grid. Yep. So, And to, to refresh our uh, listeners' memories on... You know, how my conversation with Sam sort of played out there, uh, we pretty much said, oh, yeah, I mean, alignments do have a purpose in talking about planar stuff, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whether they have any other purpose is a place where we can uh, disagree in a friendly way, but we definitely agree that they have a purpose in, in planar stuff. Yeah. But as as you're saying, yeah, it gets a little complicated here. Yeah. I think that's pretty fair. Um, what I'd probably do is somebody who is really, really avid about uh, no player alignment, no character alignment, mm-hmm. no 
uh, racial alignment, no group of authors alignment in the broad um, would be, okay, you're fucking around in the planes. So let's talk about the team jersey of, of right. this. And we're, we're talking about like, you know, what's your society, what's the society pin on your jersey, say, right. at any given time? Uh, and that doesn't necessarily impact what you do or how you play necessarily. It's more like, it would be more like, you know what? We're still not going to use the alignment category, but let's talk about your bonds. Right. Well, I, I agree with that. And I also think that if you really like, dig into what Treachery and Mad Ambition are saying, mm-hmm. like, well, Treachery is saying you go full Boromir, and Mad Ambition is saying you go full Isildur. Right. And, you know, and, and that, that is a way to say to your player, okay, please show me what this, show me in your role play what this place is doing to you. You can decide what that is. Uh, I, I, we can talk about what that, what that could be. We're not phrasing that in terms of alignment because it isn't helpful. Right. Right. But like it, Boromir is an example of one of the things here. Like, the ring was doing this to him. What, what is a similar thing that is happening to you? Uh, you know, it, it did it did this to a sealed door. Thought he could control the ring. Like how uh, how is it doing the same to you? And that's, I think, a way to get around it while operating on broadly held cultural touchstones. Right. I mean, and don't get me wrong. You're gonna have you're gonna occasionally have characters like uh, Arkin the Cool, where uh, you know, newsflash, if you're DC has the cool appended to their name and the worshiper of Tiamat. <laughs> then he might okay. totally he might totally pull a spoilers at the end of campaign one of Critical Role. Right. <laughs> uh, but but he's gonna wander into the abyss and be like, I don't know what the f is wrong with all these I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean well he's specifically in the nine hells because that's yeah. where TMAT is, but yes. Uh, and just go, just looking at the rules about a non-evil visitor that finishes an arrest must make a saving throw. Arkin the Cruel is not making the saving throw. <laughs> That's accurate. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you have it on on your character sheet or not. No one's right. making Arkin the Cruel make that saving throw. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I, I like that we also get the same level of detail, if not a little bit more, for the Nine Hells. Um, especially because this has come up in an adventure. Um, mm-hmm. Adventure made it all the way down to the first layer. <laughs> and, and the fascinating thing about this for me is that uh, this is stuff moving into the into the Dungeon Master's Guide because all of this was in the first edition was in the monster menu. Yep. Like, right, right. which the, the Nine Hell section in the monster manual was... Really interesting and evocative to me as yeah. as as a small rabbit reading that stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I I am sad that Belial doesn't have his basalt palace because I thought that was rad. But um, I mean, I, I like that there is sort of edition over edition change in the yeah. leadership that that forms this kind of very meta canon. Yeah. 
it's like a soap opera that you only get like canonical <laughs> updates maybe once an edition. And <laughs> right. and I I'm actually shocked that uh nobody has written the novel series unless they have and I missed it. And if not, you know, hey, uh whoever's doing the novel licensing, uh come hit me up. But right. um but yeah, about the D and D mythology nine hells uh soap opera shit because okay i'm absolutely here for this okay so i'll tell you that uh there in in the fourth edition days there is a set of books uh by aaron evans about uh farida and and her sister they're a couple of tieflings right and one of them is uh is oh yeah 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 Uh, yeah so uh, but but a part of those books are uh, explaining the sort of uh, what what Glacia, who is who is leading Malbolge, which is actually true in fifth edition as well. Uh, her her sort of uh, machinations to maintain power and basically you know f- over all her brothers and sisters and you know and and just all of those sort of it, it has a lot of that uh, sort of soap opera e. Um, aspect to it which is it's really funny to me i thought it was hilarious the way that it was done because she's a good writer so it was well oh, done. yeah I will, I will definitely have to check those out because that was always fascinating to me and then there there is the fact that a um for those who are actually made uncomfortable by things that reference um irl uh i guess religious or magic content a number of these these demons and devils are goetic demons uh i think uh fierna blyle more or less blyle is actually different but is definitely a i mean he shows up biblically uh gladia uh and i think gurion are all uh goetic demons um and a uh, faraday uh, uh, i think is, yeah. yeah, and her sister they're they're both in idol champions of the forgotten realms mm-hmm. at this mm-hmm. point and uh I, I love idol champions so so we have a few more planes to get through uh <laughs> just, just press on we're here but uh, like I, i'm su- i'm such a fan of the the nine hells story and setup and like the court of nessus just it's it's fun it's terrible and fun and i enjoy writing about it in a, a lot of contexts um so um a- 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 asheron it's a terrible place you shouldn't go there it's a terrible thing for you great good time um you know we have uh, uh mechanist or mechanist however it's supposed to be pronounced um I- i'm a stickler on many pronunciations but that one i just don't know um <laughs> and uh you know, I, I never miss a chance to say this. So, what do we say, Sam? Primus sucks. Primus sucks. <laughs> um, and uh, then Arcadia, which is um, sort of the the Feywild before there was a Feywild, and so it's kind of odd to me that um, the, the Feywild has gotten sort of split off from it and elfness has gotten distributed between arcadia and 
the Feywild and the Material Plane. And uh, a lot of that canon is in um, Mordenkainen's, I think. But um, it's gotten really complicated, sort of edition over edition, as they try to maintain any backward compatibility while also trying to make some, some sense of it each new time they write about it. Yeah. Well, they, there's like celestial dwarves. Sure. I mean... Well, that, that part's cool, but seriously, <laughs> Coralon is a propagandist and he can be... Sla- he should be slapped to f- death. <laughs> I, I, I just mean it in terms of like, it's, you know, elf, elf, all elf all the time in some of these yeah. more sort of magic domains. Yeah. And... Yeah. You know, here it's oh, let's bother to mention the celestial dwarves. Yeah, yep, that's definitely cool. Numerous dwarven kingdoms of Arcadia, celestial type, always brave and kind-hearted. That's kind of <laughs> rad. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, then we get other planes, uh, the Outlands and Sigil, um, and the Gate Towns of the Outlands. Like they, they just have so little time to explain, basically. All of Planescape, and right? It's, like it, it's a good college try for what they have here. Um, the Outlands, as in like, not World of Warcraft. The, the, the Lady of Pain gets a paragraph. She could be so mad. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I dearly hope they won't be amazed. That, it's fun. that at some point. Um, Watsi will actually like be able to go deep on Planescape in fifth edition and have an adventure that goes to Sigil uh, uh, in official content. The, it's the Lady of Pain, the fallen creator of the multiverse. Canonically, no, maybe not. Well, I mean, it was left up to you. Well, it, I mean, the answer here is no one knows, or if they do, they aren't telling. But uh, right. you know. well, I mean, even in Planescape, I, it was left up to us, right? Yeah. yeah. Does it say anything about the Lady of Pain in Morden Canons? Let me see. Uh, if it does, I totally skated over it uh, like a jerk. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a there's a friend of ours who is doing a, a Sego campaign where uh, one of the PCs is a uh, Hexblade and his blade is a dagger from the Lady of Pain. Mm, nice. For knives. Like, <laughs> what a cool idea. Yeah, that's oh, nice. So the Far Realm is, yeah, we need to shove something in there for great old ones. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the mythos goes here. Anyway. <laughs> right. The, the Far Realm first showed up in some of um, Bruce Cordell's stuff in 3rd edition. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been sort of... Wasn't, it, wasn't Gates of Firestorm peaked? Didn't that have some Far Realm stuff in it? Oh, you may yep, be right. They that was two e. that out. It's Sorry, that, that's 2E. You're so right. Ancient that's, Elves that's once bad. opened a vast portal to the Far Realm within a mountain called Firestorm Peak. Oh, <laughs> see, yeah. Ancient Elves. Terror and portals <laughs> of fiction, even its homeworld is long forgotten. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, well, uh, well recalled, yep. Sam. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if uh, the new canon, now that uh, Tasha's has established that there was an original world, uh, I'd be surprised if the canon isn't that those ancient elves were on the original world. It, it's, uh, it's first world problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the forum has sort of become the new 
I mean, you really can't adventure there. You'll just die. Yeah. Like, eyes yeah. and tentacles, yo. Yeah. Just eyes mm. and tentacles and shit. Just so many, so many teeth. So many teeth. Yeah, although it, if I ever do anything in it, it's just going to be Carcosa, yo. Right. Not yeah. in terms of the Carcosa module, in terms of Chamberzian Carcosa. Yeah, yeah. Like, if Holly, right, I'm there. It's, yeah. I'm down. Like, intrusive realities are... Uh, something that it's one of those like why don't we play with this a little more in D&D because like Abir Toril is just so primed for it take the step do it well because the uh, mythos content generally has sort of been superseded by the tentacles Uh, that's fair even within uh, a pretty good amount of no. People who are specifically writing mythos content, yeah, uh, and, you know, and just coming after, and, you know, leave, uh, leaving aside leaving aside some of the other issues with with chambers because there are some. Yeah, uh, uh, chambers never touched a tentacle in his life <laughs> death, as far as I know. No tentacles in chambers. Right. Uh, lots of implosive brain space and aggressive paranoia and hubris, but no tentacles. No masks either. No masks. Mm-hmm. I quite liked the uh, the fourth edition idea of the far realm that there there are like planets and stars. Yeah, the, the malign stars right. that do actually survive into fifth edition. They just don't get a ton of airtime is mm-hmm. really strong content. Oh, and, and that's not too far off what you're, what you're doing in um, the Arrakesh game. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, or, or my, my homebrew setting lifts that not by name, but by theme very heavily uh, because I like it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I really like it too. What I definitely see in this chapter, especially is that, they they kind of uh, showed their hand on a lot of what was going to be happening over the course of the edition with official content. Like this is the chapter of stuff to go explore um, because it's other settings and other planes and demi planes. And like, we're going to hit a lot of these notes folks. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we're starting to see UA um, bang that fire wild drum a little bit more. Yeah, and uh, Van Richten's got a Ravenloft, so like, it's not a Shadowfall book, but it sure is a Ravenloft book. And the general assumption is that the planar content is going to be high level content, um, uh, right? And that's it's interesting that we we have that assumption. Edition over edition. Well, that that was actually where I was going with this, which is. Um, I don't know that it necessarily has to be mm-hmm. high level content. You could certainly, I mean, certainly in a Planescape campaign in particular, you, you, you're going to be f- around the planes mm-hmm. from whatever level you start, but there is kind of no reason why you couldn't be doing some player stuff at lower levels as long as you have access to a, uh, we kind of skipped over the astral travel, astral portal section, but as long as you have something that's giving you access to that so that right. you can, 
get there and move around, or maybe, I mean, or even you could do the, um, yeah, this is a fairly normal fantasy campaign. You're starting on just one plane, but it's the elemental plane of Earth. Sure. Or it's, um, or it's some other not exactly material plane. I mean, a, a campaign that uh, started in the city of Brash or the city of Dis mm-hmm. would be super different and really interesting. Or, um, a or, or maybe a, a ship uh, built by the Space Sea Giants. Uh, yeah. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, it did. It's, it's a campaign that um, our friend Colin ran for us. Um, I, I guess my question is, uh, what's your definition of high level? Because Descent into Avernus only goes 1st to 13th. Well, well I, I am purposefully not putting a specific number on that. Because in edition over edition, what is considered high level changes, I know for me, anything over 10th level feels like unreachably high most yeah, of the time. Like, uh, first cast, plane shift. So there's that. I mean, I but I guess my thing is the edition has character classes spelled out from one to 20 yeah and they spell out four tiers of play right Mm -hmm. so if if you consider the fourth tier the highest level play you would consider that high level play right i I mean i would generally agree that third tier is is my personal like high level break Uh, calling it 11th level Mm -hmm. rather than ninth or 10th is pretty arbitrary for me sure now if you're i mean also, if you were doing just a, you know, Oops All Planes campaign, uh, if you're doing a everybody is guest sure. kind, kind of thing, um, and... <laughs> An open PvP campaign where it's half Gith Yankee, half Gith Sarai. Sweet. <laughs> oh, uh. That'll be a short one, and then we'll do the Oops All Rangers campaign, so it's fine. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, do the... Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to make Oops All Rangers also be, and everyone is Geth. You can choose whether you're a Geth Yonkey or a Geth Yonkey. Then there's that one player that thought you said GIF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and none of you will be moving pictures. <laughs> I'm not writing that spell right now. So I'm really actually not. Um, so, like, my the one thing I want to say on a world building level about uh, why planes are high level content is that um, they are a place where the high level, high level content can live and not constantly kick over the low level content that your players grew up on. Mm-hmm. Like it, as an explanation for where has this CR fifteen thing been all our lives and why didn't it kick over the kingdom back when we couldn't stop it? Right. This is your answer, and that's damn useful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and like, also. Most of these planes are established with the assumption that, assuming your characters are mortal, these are extreme places with extreme yep. uh, states, including as uh, extreme emotional states, where it's mm-hmm. imposing those states on you. Nobody lives here normally. There is no normal here, even though there's the, well, yes, there was a persistent state and this is the way it is. To a mortal, that that doesn't really fly. Normality involves a narrow range of moderate uh, behavior and emotional states, 
with only occasional dips into the extremes, not living permanently at, at an extreme. Uh, mortals don't do that well. Or people right. that, you know, folks that you would consider people, which are typically mortals, uh, aren't well built for that. And I don't know about y'all, but it would certainly feel extremely exhausting to me to have to pretend like either uh, the Abyss or Elysium were, you for, know, for sure. just normal and taken for granted. For sure. And that uh, you want them to be places where it's okay for them to stay exotic. I, I agree with that. Like, Planescape goes out of its way to make uh, Sigil a weird normal. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, and I, I mean, I asked the question in part because I, there's a part of me that likes the idea of a weird normal, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, some boundaries around that are useful. Um, anyway, the, the chapter finishes out uh, with known worlds of the material plane. We touched on that as we talked through the whole, uh, the whole chapter, but, um, They've they've checked off a few of these to one degree or another. Uh, Toril is very checked off in a very narrow area. Um, right. Remembered realms, is, the it, Sword Coast, yeah. Forgotten Realms, yeah. all the rest of the world. My little slice of Earth has gotten uh, one really good book because uh, uh, Salt Marsh is 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 killer. I love yeah. it. And then uh, Eberron is uh, very checked off and. Uh, I uh, guess uh, Iberianus is probably next. I'm betting. I think we can pretty much say uh, birthright confirmed. Yeah. Good. Cool. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yes, yeah. of course. Oh. Birth jammer confirmed. Birth jammer oh, yeah. confirmed. <laughs> Dan Dillon <Yeah>. said so. <laughs> That's all right. Wait. Yes. Yes. You can't see me giving burn just pat pats. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you, there were some of those. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, every fan theory is. I'm sure the next setting is my favorite one from this list. Right, sure. And sometimes they're right. I mean, somebody is going to be right, probably. Yeah, yeah. Spelljammer is somebody's favorite. At, at this point, Spelljammer confirmed is it, it's a, a meme. meme. It is. Oh yeah, totally. It, it That's is. why I say it because I don't really want Spelljammer. I don't. I don't give a <laughs> about giant space hamsters. So oh, 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 okay, but GIF. GIF guys, but GIF. right? But those have already showed up. <laughs> but those already showed up. So sure. yeah, multiple times. But, yeah. So Spelljammer confirmed. <laughs> right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Which is yeah, but also it's hilarious. And <laughs> Melhouse is not a moon. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, of these, um, Athos is probably my favorite, just because of. The uh, two TSR games when everyone else was playing Planescape Torment, I was playing Wake of the Ravager and Shattered Lands, and uh, Al Qadim the, Gen- the Genie's Curse, mm-hmm. um, all of which were really really good. Uh, Al Qadim is of course part of Toral, but um, but yeah, that's why I'm fond of Athos, and I'm pretty fond of Kren. Yeah, Cam Banks, I said it. Kren's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I'm not I'm not um, as enamored with Kryn as everyone else because I'm one of the weird people who did not read the Dragonlance books back when I was playing 
D&D. And the reason I didn't read them, shout out to my brother, he had them and wouldn't let me touch his books. So so I never read them. (laughs) Um, A sound kicking. Yeah. Uh, I read some of the Chronicles and they were okay, but the the one I really loved was a book of uh, short stories about dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that really enamored me to Dragonlance as a setting. And uh, I won't talk about the relative uh, quality of Dragonlance versus Forgotten Realms novels mm-hmm. at the time, right. because there's only so many fights I'm prepared to start. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, at this point, Dragonlance is is well known enough that I know who Takesis is and Tasselhoff. I know what Kinder are, and I know who Raceland Majer is. Yeah. So, you know, like, what more do I need to know? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Kinder, well, it, so in fairness, uh, a setting that is mostly uh, conquered and broken up into the domains of Dragon High Lords is pretty rad. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rad. You you can find the bad guys, and they're pretty bad. I mean, that that's a pretty good time for adventure. Okay, but a- Athos has dragon kings. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, prehist. That, that's basically prehistory of Athos because mm-hmm. you know by the time it gets to Athos, it's just okay. Desertification has set in, and all the dragon kings are liches. Hey, how do we feel about only one type of terrain in the setting? <sighs> <sighs> So he, he, he's he's poking at the fact that I really really hate winter settings and mm-hmm. everything is snow, but which I do a lot, and everything is desert settings are not much better, but the story about desertification and you know how the land got that way is at least interesting enough to hold my attention a bit more than just you know everything's freaking snow guys. Well, and, and when you, when you are in a, when you're in a desert setting and some of the spellcasters in the setting can make the planet worse and it clues you in onto, you know, the life forces in the plant on, you know, on, on that plane, it's very interesting, perhaps more so than, Hey, everything is snow. Look at that ice. Hmm, I wonder how things got that way. Oh wait, the the whole uh, subclass is called Defiler. <laughs> well, okay, I guess I know how that happened. <laughs> also, uh, uh, they Carnival stole that apparently. Go figure. Yeah, hmm. uh, accurate. Except that the the Defiler was their good guy. That's pretty weird. Yeah, there's multiple reasons I never finished that show. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, well, that brings us to the end of chapter two. Uh, so, do we have highlights about this chapter that didn't specifically get called out? Uh, no, I, I think I, you know, blathered on about all my favorite bits sufficiently and probably more than sufficiently. I, I will have you know you spoke eloquently. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, love. I apologize for my potty mouth. So, so I do have one major highlight that I want to call out uh, that we glossed over in in going through the chapter, which is the tiny sidebar on Evernight. Um, mm-hmm. 
I read and that. the reason I like this is that it is any reference at all to the fourth edition Neverwinter book because that book was fire. The book was mm-hmm. amazing. Um, and so this is the Shadowfell reflection of Neverwinter and it's in the Neverwinter book. And if you're adventuring in the realms, there's zero reasons not to go pick up uh, the 4 Neverwinter book and just bring it in your 5e campaign. Just, just go. I'm doing <laughs> you a favor. If I recall, there's a pretty nice map of it too in there. Of yeah, I bet. Yeah, yep, here it is. Very nice. It's on page 203 of the Neverwinter campaign setting for 4th edition. There you go. Sam, how about you? Any highlights we skipped in the in the movie? Uh, hmm. I don't think I don't think so. It's actually a pretty it's a short chapter, it's only about 25 pages, and I feel like for what the task was for the chapter, for as many sort of sidebars and optional little rules that they got in there, they did a pretty decent job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't really have any I don't have anything that that I would that stuck out to me that I that I, that we didn't mention already. I really feel like it's but it, it, the issue is it's a great overview and not much more. Uh right? sure, sure, sure. And and but you know that's not um a damning statement. It's just it shouldn't necessarily be anything more in the DMG than a brief overview of all these places. And because it gives you a little, you know, cog to turn or a, or a button to press with these optional rules and whatnot, it does actually give you some actionable, you know, material to work with in terms of if you wanted to actually extrapolate out and put this into your own game, you can do so with what it tells you. Yep. I agree with that. Um, like it, it's enough to be getting on with and to, to run like maybe they come out with more content that is canonical later. Maybe they don't mm-hmm. You're pretty much. Okay. Um, right. Like this isn't enough for you to invent all of Barovia without any support and expected to necessarily feel sure. like straw realm. If you don't already have an enormous amount of, like attachment and knowledge. But if you don't already have enormous amount of attachment and knowledge, do you care? Right? Is that is that a problem for you if uh you can't invent Strahd's realm from what's here on Ravenloft? Right. Why would you? Well and I'm I was just I just grabbed my Avernus book off of the shelf just to see Yeah uh, how how much detail So Avernus has a lot more depth on why being in hell sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, that's sort of what you'd expect. Uh, th- what's here is a bit of a light touch for hanging a whole adventure on it. Right. But there are some, you know, f- there's some travel rules and whatnot, right? Like if you're, let me see. Yep. It's, I can't really remember. This is the, this is the book I stopped reading halfway through because I got fed up with it. Um, which <laughs> means there's a lot oh. I didn't read of it, which is rare for me. Normally I read every single word. Um, yeah, see, there's a whole the whole section on. Yeah, it really is just here's why this place is horrible. Flesh yep. warping, uh, changed death saves, food and drink, uh, how you chart a course, 
Using the map to chart a course from one location to another is unreliable at best. It helps if the characters have visited a destination before, but even then it's no guarantee they'll end up where they intended. When you're charting a course, you ask the player whose character is overseeing navigation to roll two dice. Um, and then the dice they roll depends on whether they've been there before, whether they have a map, and whether they have a guide. If the rolls of the dice don't match, they arrive at their destination as intended. If the dice match, so if you roll doubles, you end up somewhere else. <laughs> Which is a nice little mechanic, but um, other than that, I mean, alterations to magic and just how horrible it is uh, to get food and drink. Oh, and demon icre-coated weapons. Sure. Um, but this is all like a two, two and a half pages, two pages, really? Yep. So, so even the adventure that's focused on Avernus, the first layer of hell, is not does not have very much more than what the DMG has in it, huh. right? Has a little bit more, and of course, because of the adventure, it has those places you know spelled out, and those are in a lot more detail and whatnot. But just in sure. terms of the general attributes of the place, yeah, I mean. Um... They want to do a certain amount of uh, showing rather than telling. Right, sure. Of course. First they tell you, then they show you, is I guess how I'd sum that up. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm I'm sort of projecting into the, okay, if they do another book and it is an adventure book like Avernus is, and it has a gazetteer in it from, say, the Feywild, because they've been hitting Feywild pretty hard lately, or if it has a gazetteer from, you know, one of the other planes that are talked about in this chapter, it still might not have an enormous amount of extra information in it. Like it depends on how, how that particular product is structured, I guess is what I'm saying. So um, I feel like the, the chapter is important because it gives you possibly the only information that you might get about those particular elements in fifth edition, right? Or those particular planes in fifth edition, sure. because even if they do an adventure in one of them, you're getting the adventure. You're not getting just a plane. You know, we're not going to get a book on Sigil, right? No, we're, it doesn't seem very likely. Right. We're going to get a, you know, we're not going to get a book on, you know, or, Elysium. Or I guess I'd say uh, there might be a Baldur's Gate style gazetteer of, of Sigil at the back of the Sigil adventure were there to be one. Right. Um, yeah. And what you then get is because it hit an adventure, it is now DMs guild legal. Right. Because like they really don't want to reprint a bunch of second end material when they can just sell you the PDF. Right. They'll, they'll sell you that dang PDF mm-hmm. and it's not a second ed PDF. It's a PDF on Sigil. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And so like on a business model level, it's pretty sane. It's only really strange if you're accustomed to uh, like them leaning into reprints edition over edition. Sure. Sure. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, like I think that, you know, the moment they release a single adventure, there'll be half a dozen people's interpretations of, a single gazetteer mm-hmm. that goes down to the goes down to what, what you might call sewer grate level. Uh, right. What happened to this particular sewer grate mm-hmm. uh, yep. on the DMs Guild, and that's maybe an interesting time. 
but you know, able to operate on totally different uh, sales expectations than Watsy has. Sure. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. So I think unless unless either of the two of you have anything else, that might this might be the end of the episode. I think we're good. I think we're good. Excellent. Yeah. It has been a delight talking to you about this. Uh, and yes, it I, has. I will, I will begin us off with Sam. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on RPGmusings.com, or you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, no spaces. Uh, or you can find me all over the Tome Show. How about you? Uh, well, I uh, write for Tribality.com. Um, I also have my own blog that is BrandisStoddard.com. I'm on Twitter at BrandisStoddard, and I have a Patreon that is BrandisStoddard. Uh, also, I hope that you will check out Candlekeep Mysteries. Uh, and rather, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, let's see, mostly on Twitter at Cuddleluck, C A U D E L A C. I have a much neglected blog at um, uh, deckofmanythings.blogspot.com, and I have a Patreon that same, same as my Twitter handle. Yay! Um, and so I think that's going to take us out. Yep. Yep. Thanks so much, everybody. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for being here. Y'all are great. Wear your masks, even once you have vaccines, because please, we need to stop this thing. Yes. yes.